I'm Daryl Brugink, and welcome to the 24th episode of our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Seeking the Perfect No-Till Picket Fence Stand, Part 2, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to TopCon Agriculture for sponsoring today's episode. DNAG, it's in TopCon's genes. Learn more about how TopCon employers, dealers, and experts are using TopCon products in their own operations and research during the Farm Progress Show in Decatur, Illinois. Presentations will take place on the DNAG stage at booth 215 on Tuesday and Wednesday at 10 a.m., 11 a.m., 1 p.m., and 2 p.m. Plus, there's a bonus session on Wednesday at 3 p.m. featuring Dr. Antonio Ray Esbito of Kansas State University and Doug Weist of FarmTech in Chateau, Montana. They will discuss advances in active crop health sensors and the important role they continue to play in modern agronomic recommendations. Asbito and Weist will review the scientific research that crop sensors are currently driving, as well as their practical application by progressive farmers. Check out TopCon in booth 215 at the Farm Progress Show. Over a 40-year career studying no-till, Paul Yass has become one of the best sources of information in the Midwest on no-till planting equipment setup and proper placement of seed in the soil. Recognized this past year as one of the 25 living legends of no-till and a past no-till innovator award recipient in the research and education category, the University of Nebraska Extension Engineer is synonymous with the phrase picket fence stand. Today, we bring you part two of a two-part podcast series with Paul Yassa, brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. We pick up on my recent interview with Paul, where he describes some of the specific actions no-tillers should consider in trying to achieve the perfect picket fence stand of corn. The actions that Paul recommends in today's episode are all about achieving uniformity of seedling emergence, which gives no-tillers the chance to achieve the highest yields possible. We now join Paul Yassa, where he talks about factors for determining the ideal seeding depth. Well, when it comes to our seeding depth on corn in particular, a little bit holds true for our other crops as well. Uh, the key is we need to place it down in good soil moisture. That good soil moisture uh, on your eastern listeners with poorly drained soils, that might be only a half inch deep. Uh, for the western soils, it might be three inches deep. So again, get it into moisture or have rain coming or irrigation coming or something to make sure I get the moisture to get that seed germinate, get the plant established. But when it comes to the the way the roots develop when it comes to our grasses, uh, corn is a grass where out of the seed up comes the coleoptile. When the coleoptile reaches infrared light or the soil surface where it gets real light, it sends a signal to the plant that I'm going to set my nodal roots. Well, the predetermined coleoptile length, if I plant deeper, I can actually get nodal roots establishing deeper in the soil for better standability on my corn. When I started looking at that, I started working deeper. Uh, typical corn planting depth in Nebraska is around an inch and a half to two inches, depending upon the producer. And I started going a half inch deeper each year. When I got to about three and a half inches in a well-structured no-till soil, 
that's where I'm finding my best yields on my corn. Now, a lot of your listeners out there may say, three and a half inches, that's pretty deep. Well, again, when you start thinking about move a half inch deeper each time, stop when you find your ideal planting depth. I can guarantee corn is typically planted too shallow when it comes to developing a good root system. Uh, if we plant it too shallow, that root system, we've got a few nodal roots and we got a couple of brace roots. When I plant deeper, some of what my neighbors call brace roots are actually minor below the soil surface become supporting roots, and I get more brace roots because I got more nodes closer to the ground. Those more nodes can give me better standability, gives me better water and nutrient uptake. So by planting deeper, it helps a lot. The other thing is, is our corn planters we have on the market today typically have a 15-inch disc opener on it. They were developing corn planting depths were two to three inches deep. The angle closing is on the back of the planter extend them downward the intersect imaginary point about two inches deep. If you plant shallower than that, I don't expect that disc opener to work real well cutting residue. It's going to more likely hairpin residue. If you're hairpinning residue when you're planting, you're not planting deep enough for what that opener is designed for. Also, the press wheels in back intersecting two inches deep. If I'm planting shallower than that, I'm packing below the seed and not firming the seed in the soil. So we're going to have problems. Now again, some of our listeners out there may have simply took off those press wheels and put on spoked closing wheels. Then I wasn't packing below the seed, but again, it's, we're spending money that they didn't have to if they simply plant deeper. Now I say that because I, I use my corn planter to plant grain sorghum, soybeans as well. Since the planter is designed to run two to three inches deep, I plant my grain sorghum at two inches deep. I plant soybeans about two and a half inches deep. The corn, we're at a three and a half now. And with going deeper, we get that better root system for a more resilient system by being able to handle temporary moisture stress, being able to handle a nutrient uptake of the better root system. So go ahead and just, like I say, whatever your normal corn planting depth is, set it a half inch deeper, keep track of it through the next growing season. I'll bet you the next year you're going to plant everything a half inch deeper and you're going to do another test plot of a half inch more. And pretty soon I've got a lot of listeners out there who are down three-inch planting depth to get that better standability. That's good. We always encourage, and I know no-tills are usually pretty good at testing things out, so that's some good advice for maybe a trial that farmers would want to do in, in studying their seeding depth. It, but just to go back real quickly, you mentioned that there could be situations where you might want to go a little shallower, and it sounds like that could have to do with some moisture perhaps. If uh, you've had a real wet spring, would you come off of that a little bit? The reason to plant shallower, yes, a real wet spring, uh, roots are like you and me. They need oxygen to breathe. They respire. And if I have a first-year no-tiller, a second-year no-tiller who hasn't built good soil structure yet, doesn't have oil-drained soil like we have, I, I can guarantee by planting too deep above a tillage pan, a little bit of a restricting layer there, after heavy rain, that restricting layer doesn't let water soak in very fast. That root zone now is supposed to be the pores are half air, half water. Well, with the restricted layer there, those pores might be all water. And with a saturated soil, those seeds will not grow. And so in that case, I am going to plant shallower if I'm working my way into no-till from a tilled system. If I have a root-restricting layer there or water-restricting layer, I'm going to plant shallower. And that's why I say move only a half inch at a time. If i got a producer out there with a root-restricting layer down at four inches deep from running a field cultivator for years at four inches deep and you put a seed at three and a half and I get even a little bit of rain, I'm going to drown that seed out. And so again, as I build structures, then I can move deeper. As I'm longer in no-till, I can move deeper. But again, uh, 
the, one of the problems with planting shallow is, yes, there might be water down there sitting on that tillage pan, but when a rain stops and that top layer dries out, now I don't, may not have the seed deep enough to get a good root system. And so again, think about what the planter is designed for, think about what you've done in the past as far as the soil structure itself, and then evaluate where should I put that seed. And like I say, don't make a huge change in a single year, just a little bit at a time, half inch type of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. How about when it comes to the spacing of corn plants within the row? And obviously, I know populations, you know, of what you may be using are going to dictate that. But really, do you find that, you know, in, you know, 30-inch rows are obviously the most common thing. Probably 90% or more of our corn is, is grown that way. So what would you like to see as far as an ideal spacing between the corn plants within the row? Well, when it comes to spacing, one of the things that we get concerned about is uh, a non-uniform spacing. Uh, we get away from that picket fence. What the picket fence stand allows us to do is to give every plant equal access to the resources it needs for growth, whether it be the water or nutrients in the soil, whether it be the sunlight coming down. So when you think about spacing, the ideal spacing varies a lot upon your soil, your resources available for your production, what's your uh, production potential, a little bit on the hybrid itself because they have different ideal populations for each of them. But I find out that breeders are giving us a lot more flexibility now when it comes to being able to accept non-uniform spacing. Uh, a lot of the breeding programs are not so much to increase yield, it's to decrease the yield losses when you have problems. We took a hybrid from the 30s uh, in the ideal spacing and we put it uh, out there today compared to some of the new hybrids and we had no stress they'd yield probably about the same. But what happens is as we get stresses, that's when our yields go down. And so we start thinking about the ideal spacing. Again, it's uniformity of growth, uniformity of competition for resources. I had an interesting study I did for about uh, five years where I actually planted the seeds by hand so I could control the spacing. And I planted the seeds either by calendar or by depth so I could do a little bit of control of emergence. And I say a little bit. It's amazing that uh, Mother Nature can make up for some problems there. But when it comes to non-uniform spacing, I found it didn't affect yield very much if the emergence was uniform. If uh, plants come up at the same time, uh, the two plants are close together, would actually try to outcompete each other, and they'd actually rob from the plant that's further away from them because they were more aggressive. And it seems odd because everybody thought if you had a double that that's going to be the smallest ears in the field. I actually found the double were larger ears, and the plants next to the double were the smaller ears if they come up at the same time. Now, if one come up and the other come up five days later or something like that, then the second one would be a barren plant. The first one would have had all the resources for growth. So think about uniformity on emergence. But the spacing itself, uh, the other funny thing I think about is uh, a lot of people are excited about twin row corn. Well, twin row corn uh, in the late 60s, there was about eight different manufacturers of twin row planters out there. And again, it was because of the stress that spacing problems were creating. What a producer was doing back then, it was typically 38 or 40 inch rows that we came from. Uh, planters had uh, some little bit of spacing errors, but we started pushing plant populations to get more ears out there. Well, if you had uh, a plant population of 40-inch rows where the seeds were uh, 5 inches apart and you had a spacing error and the seeds were only 2 inches apart, it really hurt you because our hybrids couldn't handle the stress. So by going to twin row, we automatically doubled the spacing between the seeds 
in an individual row because we had twice as many rows. Well, about the same time, though, we moved to 30-inch rows. About the same time, John Deere came out with the finger pickup planter that reduced spacing errors. So at that time, all, almost all those twin row planters disappeared from market. Well, now we're farming 30-inch rows, like you said. 30-inch rows, we start pushing the population to get more ears out there. Spacing errors start to show up again to affect yield if you don't have a hybrid that can handle the stress. And what showed up on the market again last, uh, oh, 10 15 years ago, twin row planters again. Let's put more rows out there. Or switch to 20-inch rows or 15-inch rows. By putting more rows out there, the plants spread apart in the row, and then our spacing errors become less of a problem when it comes to affecting yield. So when people ask about the ideal spacing, you know, it might be equal distance spacing every direction. Now, that would be a diamond planting pattern type across the field. Uh, we have trouble with that when it comes to the number of a row units to be able to do that. We're going to spend a lot more money. We're going to have trouble getting tires down between those rows because they're going to have to be real skinny or we're going to run over something. And so the ideal spacing, uh, when I did my master's thesis, uh, I found a lot of published papers that said the ideal spacing was 18 inches apart in every direction. Well, the hybrids we had that time that could not handle stress, maybe that was, was ideal. If we think about a 43,560 population, that's an odd number, but that's a square feet an acre. Uh, we've got some producers planting that high population, high yield contest. That'd be a foot apart in every direction. Again, 12-inch uh, rows, the seeds 12 inches apart. That might be ideal spacing for maximum yield, but it's going to have some mechanical difficulties to get that accomplished in the field. We're also we're on this plant spacing thing. You've looked at the impact of like doubles or skips on corn yield, and you know I think that's kind of interesting as far as what happens to your yield when you when you get a planter malfunction and you get doubles or you end up with a skip. What kind of have you seen there with the impact of, of those types of situations? When it comes to the skips and doubles, uh, it does disturb you when you look across the field uh, because the plant space is not that picket fence. Uh, but when it comes to the effects on yields, a skip is a missing ear. Period. Uh, no matter what your population is, if I got some seeds missing, I got some yield potential missing there. I say potential. It depends on where you're at on your population scale. Uh, there are some producers who are uh, a little on the cheap side. Uh, I might be one of them that I'm going to cut my population simply because seed corn is so expensive that uh, any year you go to purchase it. Well, if you're on the low side of the population, a skip is definitely lost yield. Now, on the other side of the coin, if you're cheap and not buying as much seed as you should be planting, a double is actually a bonus because now I'm going to get an extra ear out there. Now, if you're pushing your population to start with, now that double might be just enough to push you over the edge. You don't have enough resources to fill that extra plant, extra ear out there. Now, again, I don't think that's the case in most of our situations out there that most of the time we're planting lower populations than our true yield production could be out there. When it comes to population, my report card is actually look at that ear when it's developed. At harvest time, when I pick that ear off, I look at the tip of the ear. If it's filled all the way to the tip, a lot of farmers think, oh, that's fantastic. I think, no, I didn't have enough plants out there to use all the resources I had available. I like to see the ears tip back maybe a half inch that didn't fill all the way to the end. That tells me I had enough plants out there, I used all my resources, and I actually used them up enough to the point where I couldn't fill all the ears. And so with that in mind, we've been pushing our populations up over the years. Uh, as our no-till soil structure resilience of the soil is built over the years, 
we keep pushing our populations up. And actually, on our dryland Rogers Memorial Farm, without irrigation, we are planting our crop as if it was an irrigated crop. Uh, we are pushing a population that in an area of the state where a lot of our dryland producers are dropping only 25,000 seeds for corn, we're dropping 33,000, similar to an irrigator. But again, it's because we know we've got the resources, we know we've got a resilient system, and we make sure that planter's in good shape so those plants have that uniform emergence. Well, another aspect of uniformity is the emergence of the crop, and as far as it coming up, coming out of the soil, and uh, I know you like to see that crop uniform emergence all coming up at the same time. Uh, and we, you've you've you know studied and looked at penalty for a late emerging corn plant. What have you seen there? Well, when it comes to late emergers, uh, the thing that uh, a lot of people look at is what's that ear size? Uh, the thing, again, a report card when I'm walking a field, I can even walk a field after harvest and determine did I have a late emerger. Look at the stock diameter. Look at the internode distances on the corn plant. That late emerger came up. He's going to be growing faster, trying to get out of the shadow of his early emerging neighbor. He's going to be growing, uh, hopefully, when the weather is warmer in the spring, because the spring does warm up. So he's going to be growing faster. So the nodes would be further apart. The stock would be a smaller diameter. The ear would be set higher. We haven't harvested yet. We can look at that. And the non-uniform height of the ears tells me we had non-uniform emergence. But again, when it comes to how is it going to affect what's going on, uh, it depends upon the year. Uh, when I was doing my hand planting, trying to control emergence, I found out I was not. Uh, I tried planting one, two, three inches deep to get different rates of emergence. Well, in well-structured no-till soil, a seed needs about 125 growing degree units to emerge. Uh, one, two, and three inch depth in a well-structured soil, they all accumulated that growing degree units at the same time. They came up within a couple of hours of each other. I couldn't tell the difference. Now, there might be a wet soil down at three inches, a dry soil at one, then you might have some differences because your heat accumulation will be different. So again, when it comes to uniform emergence, try for a nice uniform root zone, a nice uniform seed bed out there. Uh, when it comes to another way I tried to control emergence was planting date. I planted uh, half my stand one day, and five days later I come back, planted the other half of the stand. Or I did 10 days later for the other half of the stand. Or maybe one in four plants or one in eight plants for my research. Well, one year, uh, just planting uh, half the stand and the other half 10 days later, I lost one-third of my yield because of late emergers. Uh, on another year, I had no difference in yield. And it's because those first 10 days were so cool and wet that that early planted seed didn't come up. When the later planted seed was put in the ground is when it warmed up and all the seeds came up about the same time. And so it's not so much how many days apart they emerged, it's what growth stage are they in. If it's more than two growth stages behind, two leaves behind, the odds are it's going to be a barren plant. I don't want to see that in the field. What I want is that uniform emergence, and that's where I'm going to tune up uh, not just the plant, I'm going to tune up the rest of the soil system. Uniform cover residue, that's why I don't run residue movers, I've got residue everywhere. Uniform seeding depth, that's where I make sure there's enough weight on my planter to get all the seeds down in the ground in the right depth. Even a device like a seed firmer, uh, whether it be a Keaton seed firmer or a there's others now coming on the market, or a Shaffert rebounder that gets the seed to the bottom of the furrow. Again, the uniform emergence because they had a uniform seeding depth. So tune up the rest of the system for that uniformity. 
We'll get back to Paul Yasa in just a minute, but I want to take a moment to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, Topcon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4-hour nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how Topcon Agriculture Application Solutions make agronomy work for you. I found it interesting the emphasis that Paul has placed on uniformity in all aspects of no-tilling, starting with the uniformity of residue management at harvest time right down to uniformity of seeding depth and spacing when planting in an effort to get uniform emergence of corn. Uniformity, Paul says, is what you need to have a chance at achieving the highest yields possible. And if you are able to achieve uniformity of crop emergence, you will be avoiding the yield penalty with late emergers. Paul adds that if a corn plant is two leaf stages behind in emergence with its neighbors, the odds are you will have a barren plant. He urges no-tillers not only to tune up their planter, but tune up the entire soil system to achieve uniformity. Let's continue our visit with Paul Yasa, and here's recommendations on what changes, tune-ups, or updates no-tillers may want to consider making to their planters. And Paul will also give his opinion on topics like crop rotation, hybrid selection, nitrogen placement and application, and herbicide applications. Well, it's true when I'm talking about planters, drills, air seeders, I don't spend a lot of time on the seed metering itself because farmers should have been taking care of that no matter what their chili system is. That's actually where a lot of our uh, equipment dealers out there provide a nice service to uh, rebuild the planter seed metering. They'll test the seed metering uniformity. They'll uh, replace worn parts, uh, things like that. It's all for a fee. A farmer can do a lot of that himself. But again, that seed metering is only part of the puzzle. Just get the seed spaced out there. As my research has found out, the, the spacing uniformity isn't near as critical as the emergence uniformity. That's where I'm going to pay attention more. And that's how the planter was tuned up in the shop. I'm going to pay attention more how the planter performs in the field. Am I moving too fast that I have planter unit bounce? Am I a little bit light on my down pressure such that in some areas of the field it drifts out of the ground? Or if I'm going over a patch of heavy residue, it rises up out of the ground. That's where, again, uniformity by spread the residue uniformly behind the combine makes a big difference on uniformity of that stand in the field. When it comes to, again, where I plant uh, wheel track versus non-wheel track, that's where I like planting down the old row. Now, I know I'm talking about planters here, but we've got some of our listeners out there who might be using a grain drill to plant their soybeans or an air seeder to plant soybeans, and they say, well, I'm going to run on a diagonal. A, a diagonal across the field will help me handle the residue. Uh, well, yes, it will, but now I'm going to ask that opener to be able to cut through the root stump from last year's corn crop, for instance, when they're planting beans. Then I'm going to ask that opener to penetrate that hard wheel track row that I drove on last year, but then I want to make sure it doesn't go too deep in that soft row where I didn't drive last year. Well, that right there is three different seeding conditions. You can't set the opener for all three conditions. That's where I like to plant with the rows. I like actually controlled wheel traffic myself. But again, I can help fine-tune that seeder unit, whether it be the drill, the air seeder, or the planter itself, for that uniform seed placement, the uniform penetration. And for instance, on our grain drill, uh, the 
two openers that are following the wheel track of the, the tractor, I've got set on heavier down pressure than the ones that are going in the soft rows. The drill units that are next to the corn row, I've got set with a little more down pressure than the ones that are between the corn rows. So again, I can fine tune that for more uniform seed placement or uniform emergence. And so again, every little thing starts to add up when you start thinking of the systems approach. Those are things that the dealer would not set when that planter's in the shop because he doesn't know how you're operating that in the field. And so again, tune up the entire system. A few quick hitting questions, and uh, I got about five here I want to ask you about. You you touched on rotations a little bit. What should no-tillers be striving for in their cropping rotation? When it comes to rotations, one of the keys is diversity, and the diversity helps us when it comes to pest management, disease management. But uh, the other thing is the rotation helps us to develop a healthier soil, more resilient soil. It's like you or me, if we go to the restaurant uh, and they get a buffet there, do you spend all your time at the salad bar? Do you spend it all at the steak and potatoes? No, we're going to do a variety of food while our soil likes a variety of food as well. Uh, just like you and I like to eat year-round, so does our soil. So when I start thinking about rotations, uh, either my cash crop or by the addition of my cover crop, I want to include a warm season grass, a cool season grass, a warm season legume, a cool season legume. And for instance, a corn soybean producer, they've got the grass and legume, but they're both warm season. Throwing that cool season cover crop to help balance the diet for the soil, to help uh, get diversity out there, to help minimize pests and diseases. Uh, I've seen a lot of uh, fields where, for instance, a cereal rye cover crop is out there and uh, it suppresses weeds. Uh, the diversity then is going to help when it comes to weed control. We're going to see uh, diversity help when it comes to minimizing uh, diseases. We always hear about uh, the South Americans grow soybeans every year. Well, area in Brazil I visited, they had soybeans every year, but the season was long enough they did a double crop. And when the soybeans were planted into that double crop residue, they did not know they were growing in a field where soybeans were raised last year because any raindrop splash would splash things off of that grass residue. So again, that diversity gives us a better disease package, if you want to call it, because the soybean didn't know it was growing in the field that was soybeans last year. It was growing into some different cover. The same thing can happen for us. Uh, we had a little project where we had actually corn on corn, uh, warm season grass on warm season grass, but we planted the cool season cereal cover crop. Well, that next year when the rain came, splashed on that cereal rye residue, there was no disease knocking them to splash up on the corn, even though it's corn on corn. So again, the cover helped give us some diversity just by giving us cool season versus warm season. Better yet would be throw in a legume uh, for the cool season. Again, think about diversity. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people going back to the good old corn, bean, wheat rotation. Some people say you can't make a lot of money on wheat. Well, properly managed you can, but it gives me the opportunity to put in a cover or a second crop or a forage crop or a double crop by bringing wheat back into rotation. And again, I can add that diversity to help build the soil system. Think rotation, like I say, at least three things is required for rotation. Two is an oscillation and monocrop is a problem. Well, and you've uh, what you said there is a good friend of No-Till Farmer and, and, and friend of yours too, Dwayne Beck up at Dakota Lakes Research Farm, uh, would always cringe when he heard about corn and soybeans in the Midwest being a rotation. And so, uh, you know, this addition of cover cropping today, probably making a lot of folks like yourself smile to see that that's come, in, come into play uh, a lot more here in the last decade. How about uh, thoughts on hybrid selection for no-till corn? Uh, 
you know, maybe as it relates to your cropping rotation, anything you kind of recommend there with what you're going to select for your hybrids? When it comes to our corn breeding programs and the improvements we see in hybrids, it's usually to how to handle stresses. And uh, when I get into a well-structured soil with a good soil biology, a more resilient soil system, my hybrid selection, uh, I can look toward, you know, what are my stresses now? And uh, for a lot of your listeners out there, it's going to be just a, a water stress sometime during the year. Uh, again, it depends upon your soil. If I got a good deep soil, a lot of stored water, maybe not. So again, evaluate what your field conditions are and see what that package is on that hybrid. Uh, when it comes to uh, diseases, uh, when it comes to uh, some of the genetics as far as uh, GMOs, as far as a uh, rootworm or corn borer, things like that, start to figure out what your stresses are and select that package uh, that will handle the stress. Now, a lot of people are out there looking for the racehorse hybrid, the maximum yield. Well, in a non-stress environment, those racehorse hybrids are great. found out when I get to the long-term no-till, my resiliency is being built in the system, I can select more of those racehorse hybrids, and I have less failures than the guy who is doing tillage because he has more stresses. And so, again, we think about uh, what are your problems in your area or the problems in your own fields, and then stress, uh, stress the idea of selecting the package that will handle that. And uh, we got some of these diseases, for instance, uh, that are uh, residue-borne. Well, don't plant the hybrid A on hybrid A again. Select hybrid B because it has the disease resistance that A did not have. And so a lot of times I'll end up actually rotating hybrids that uh, this year I'll go ahead and have one that might be susceptible to this, but next time I'm going to make sure I don't have that same hybrid. And so, again, we look at hybrid rotation. Uh, along with crop rotation when it comes to our disease packages. You, where do you stand on, uh, let's look at fertilizer here, but where do you stand on nitrogen placement, timing of applications, and what, you know, and it, 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 with that planter time, what about infurl pop-ups or maybe using some extra starter nitrogen? What are some general things you've seen with, with fertility? When it comes to fertility, as an engineer going through school, I didn't have a chance to take any soils classes. So everything I've learned is by working with producers, working with uh, the research farm itself. Back in school, though, I'm actually glad I didn't take those classes because they told us back then that you can put nitrogen anywhere because it's mobile with soil water, and you have to incorporate your phosphorus and potassium because they're non-mobile. When it actually comes to working with long-term no-till, I found it's almost the opposite. I can put my phosphorus and potassium across the soil surface, so the good soil structure, earthworm activity, things like that. That's going to move into the soil uh, with... Uh, nutrients, uh, they are mobile somewhat when it comes to a good soil water solution. No-till has that compared to tilled soil. So P&K on top doesn't bother me a bit. Now nitrogen on top does bother me because that's where my residue is. Those microbes are going to temporarily tie up that nitrogen to break down the residue. Also, if it's a wet soil condition on top, I can have some denitrification and I can have some volatilization if it's hot and dry. And so I hate putting nitrogen on top. I always want to inject my nitrogen. Now, again, since I use a controlled wheel traffic system, I know where my rows are. I inject my nitrogen actually as far away from the corn row as possible so I don't get any root burning and seedling burning. But by the time the roots do reach the nitrogen, the nitrogen has been spread out to the point where it's not a problem. Remember, it is mobile in-soil water solution. But since my nitrogen is a little ways away from that young seedling, I do like that pop-up fertilizer in furrow. It uh, depends upon your soil tests your soil system, 
But uh, 10340 is what we use. The liquid straight in the seed bee gives me a little bit of nitrogen for early growth, gives me a little bit of phosphorus for early growth as well. And I do that because, again, in no-till, you might have a cold, wet soil. If the cold, wet soil roots are a little slower to grow. It doesn't matter how many nutrients out in the rest of the soil profile if it takes some time to get to it. That's where I call it just a pop-up. It's just a start. Get it going. Now, one thing I do have to watch and uh, warn listeners about is uh, watch the total salt equivalent of the fertilizer to reduce seedling injury or germination uh, inhibition. Uh, it's because that salt is what causes the problems. 1034 is a basically a low-salt fertilizer because it doesn't have any potassium. It has very little nitrogen in it compared to some fertilizers. If I put straight uh, UAN solution in furrow, that's almost putting in straight salt, and you have a lot of problems. So the inferral's pop-up is nice to get it started. If I had a higher salt content fertilizer, get it out of the seed V with an attachment two, three, four inches at the side of the row. Uh, I say four inches. Some people say, well, isn't that too far? Well, if my starter attachment in front is four inches inside the, the row, and if it does pull up some wet, sticky soil, it's less likely to ball up on my depth gauge wheel. If I had it two inches inside the, the row, the fertilizer opener may disturb the soil, and now it's going to ball up my depth gauge wheel and have non-uniform planting depth. And so, again, think, think about salt content. Now, be careful. There are some companies out there that say they sell a low-salt fertilizer. No. If it's a fertilizer, it is a salt, period. That's what fertilizer is, an anion and a cation bonded together. That's a salt. So what you look at is a salt equivalent. Every fertilizer has a rating for that. So watch the salt content for your soils. The general rule of thumb on 30-inch rows is I want to stay below 5 pounds of salt on a dry soil, below 10 pounds of salt equivalent on a wet soil. And again, it's because of the moisture from the fertilizers, what the seed germinates with, it's going to take in the salt. So again, watch that salt content, get it out of the furrow. Guys planting corn into cereal rye, for instance, that uh, extra 30 to 50 pounds of nitrogen going to have to be outside the furrow. Maybe even dribble on the soil surface in a concentrated band, but beside the seed row. You know, weed control is always a big issue, has been a big issue in the past for no-tillers. And uh, obviously, yeah. no-tillers kind of known for their burn downs and, and trying to start clean. But we see a lot of guys, you know, sometimes trying to make that first application as a pre-emerge after the, the crop's been planted, but before it emerges. So where, where, what is your research or what have you seen stand on, you know, the value of a pre-planned herbicide, ver, you know, versus perhaps other timings? When it comes to weed control, uh, there's a lot of tools in our toolbox there. And unfortunately, a lot of them have been misused simply out of convenience or simply out of ease of application. And I say that because we've got some glyphosate-resistant weeds out there and now everyone calls them Roundup-resistant weeds because that was the first one on the market, but uh, the people have been using generics for years. If we keep using the same tool over and over again, it gets less effective. Now, when I learned to no-till back in 1978, Roundup was just being introduced about $100 a gallon, and you couldn't afford to do a lot of spraying on that. Well, it dropped quickly in price, especially when the generics came out. But I learned to no-till without using Roundup. Uh, I put down an early pre-plant herbicide. My residual herbicides were reined in and activated. I planted it into a weed-free environment. And again, in Nebraska, where moisture is a critical thing, I could not afford to have weeds using soil moisture ahead of time. And so I'd put down the herbicide a couple weeks in front of planting. And in fact, in the early days, we did a two-thirds early, one-third at planting time just to give you season-long control because the product may not last long enough if you put it on too early. And so uh, that's the kind of thinking that I still like. Uh, don't let weeds get ahead of you. 
even if you are going to use a burn down, even if you are going to use a post-emerge product, uh, the herbicide label is usually designed for weeds that are two inches tall. It might give a rate for a weed that's four inches tall. I see far too many of our farmers out there, they'll spray weeds that are two foot to four foot tall. That's way outside of the range of what the herbicides were designed to take care of. And so post-emerge products do work if properly timed. The bad news is, is if it doesn't have a residual, you may end up doing two or three post-emerge operations. That's why I like a residual pre-plant reined in activated. Again, uh, a treatment at planting time might be effective. We've got some guys have nozzles straight on their planters where they can put down the herbicide while they're planting. When it comes to uh, timeliness in the field, I'd rather keep the planter running planting corn. I'm not going to slow down filling up the herbicide tank all the time. So again, a separate trip of the sprayer well, again, it's a separate trip. I might be busy planting a couple weeks ahead of planting. That's where my spare time is where I can be putting out the herbicide. And so again, we like to plant in that weed-free environment. And again, it helps conserve water for us. And it gets to be a little easier to go through the field if you don't have random patches of weeds out there. Well, this has been really enjoyable, you know, talking with you, Paul, and, and getting your opinions on some of these things. And again, based on all this work and research you've done over over the past four decades, you know, one closing question for you. I mean, you've been a real adamant supporter for no-till, and, you know, some folks are probably would joke it's a, it might be on the, on the side of fanatical. But, but you know, there's reasons behind why you're so, so supportive of no-till, and, and Take us through why that has been uh, such a, a big part of your life, uh, you know, looking at no-till and championing it. Well, I grew up in northeast Nebraska where we have a lot of uh, rolling hills uh, or near the Missouri River, so we've got some steep hills in some places. When it comes to uh, what I saw growing up was uh, clean tillage and after heavy rainfall in the spring, a lot of erosion. And when it comes to my early work at the university, I spent a lot of time looking at the soil and water conservation benefits of no-till, the soil and water conservation benefits of leaving residue on the soil surface. And as I grew with the system, learned more about the soil structure, more about infiltration, storing the water, having less runoff, again, less erosion. The no-till system is the system to go when it comes to soil and water conservation. Now, along the way, I also learned a lot about soil life, soil biology. And again, the longer I work with that, the more I realize that any kind of tillage, even the, the vertical tillage is about an inch or two deep, is too much tillage when it comes to protecting our soil biology. And when you actually think about vertical tillage, that's exactly the worst layer of soil to till, the interface between sky and the soil. That's where our soil biology is, that's where our residue is, that's where I don't want to disturb it. And so again, the, the adamant about no-till is simply because there's too many problems with tillage when it comes to our soils build that soil life, keep our soil, keep our water. Thanks again to Paul Yassa for sharing what he's discovered from 40 years of no-till planting research at the University of Nebraska and sharing his views on the value of uniformity in achieving picket fence stands. And thanks to TopCon Agriculture for making this podcast series possible. We'll be back with our next episode in the No-Till Farmer podcast series on Friday, September 8th. If you enjoyed learning about Paul's opinions on no-till, you might want to visit the No-Till Farmer website at notillfarmer.com. Just use the search function at the top of the homepage and type in Paul Yasa. Yasa is spelled J-A-S-A. That search will reveal numerous stories throughout the years in which Paul's opinions were shared. 
Also, consider joining us for the 26th annual National No-Tillage Conference. The 2018 event is taking place for the first time in Louisville, Kentucky from January 9th through the 12th with 37 speaker presentations and 80 roundtable discussions to choose from. Register by next Thursday, August 31st to save $85. For more information or to register, visit notillconference.com. Again, thanks to our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Paul Yassa, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Daryl Brugink. Thanks for listening.